All righty, let me pray, and uh, we'll kind of review, maybe answer a few questions if we get there, and then we're not going to jump judges until the second half, because um, we're going to talk about Joshua, and I thought, well, we might as well feed it. We might go in the right order, Joshua, then judges. So. But Father, we just thank you for our time this morning, and just pray that uh, you'd be honored as we look to how to study your word with a heart to be precise, and knowing that you are uh, also gracious uh, to us. And, uh, Lord, uh, we just pray that uh, we'd honor you with this time. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right. A little review at first here to try to catch up where we've been. So uh, we're trying to talk in this setting, in these classes, about a process. It's not to say it's the only way to go about it. It's kind of to say this is the way I go about it. This is the way I think is uh, most helpful out of the ways um, that I have read and done things. It's, a, it's kind of a compilation of things. Um, and also probably a way that is very practical, um, that is easy to practice and easy to repeat. And so in that way, I, I really like this um, way of going about it because we could be taking, and honestly, we might even, I might even teach a class at some point that's a little more on the side of basic hermeneutics. So the art and science of studying scripture where we might talk um, through like topics, and that's kind of how I was taught. But I, I like sitting more in the observation because that's where you're sitting week in and week out in daily Bible reading. And so this hopefully is going to equip you uh, to identify clues throughout that are pointing to uh, a right understanding of what the text is saying. And that's partially where we've talked about this idea of a central theme, uh, what's the main subject of the book, and then, not today, but then next week we'll start breaking that down into paragraphs or pericopes and sections and um, different steps, but we're still in observation. So we haven't moved on. This is, I believe, lesson five, and we're still in observation. We talked early on that observation is 80 plus percent of what you should be doing, and the more you do observation, and part of this, I think the first, if you're going to study or teach a book, this is the first step is to identify um, the main topic or the central theme of that book. And then we're going to get to, the, like I said, step two next week. But it's still going to be a number of weeks before we even get through observation. And so I'm not trying to talk about interpretation. I'm not trying to talk about implication for anything else. I'm just saying we're going to observe. And I think if you observe well, the interpretation is going to be easier. And the implication or the application is going to start just to ooze out because you can't help but see all the connections for us. We're going to I guess in some ways we'll apply some of these things just because like I said, I want you to observe things that are so unique and powerful you can't help but kind of see an implication for life. So we've been talking about these five things, author, audience, occasion, purpose, central theme. Um, we've looked at how to identify the author. New Testament books can tend to be really easy. How did anyone identify the author of Judges by reading Judges? So sometimes it's hard. Um, and also, I think <coughs> identifying that it's not right there that Samuel wrote Judges is helpful. Um, and so it's important to note if you can't find it or, you know, anonymous. Um, and I think clearly this is going to be, when we look at Judges at least in a historical book, it would seem, based on depending on how you get to um, the period it was written, that will have an impact on probably how you see it compiled. Uh, we looked at how to identify an audience. Sometimes you're going to have an audience in general. So just using judges because we're going to be there in a minute. You're going to talk and say, 
a general idea of saying, well, who's judges to? Well, it's not to the church. It is to Israel. You kind of get to the New Testament, and it talks about all the Old Testament stories being for the church, and so we could even talk about an extension of that. But even then, we can sharpen it and probably get to, well, when was this written and to which generation of Israel? And so there's ways to sharpen down the audience, but it is helpful to know who is being addressed to then discover the occasion. So when we talk occasion, uh, we're thinking of answering that question, uh, what prompted the writing? Um, is there a problem in the church like in 1 Corinthians that says, I've got to write this to you? Is there an issue like in Jude where I wanted to write this, this, and this to you, but I have to remind you um, to contend for the faith again? Purpose, and so the other side of that coin is um, this is why I'm writing to you, and the purpose then being more precise in what the writer wants to accomplish in that book, and then what is the overarching subject or what is the, the main central theme that every argument, and that's where we're going to break it into eventually paragraphs, is going to point back to, um, to where you can summarize in one sentence what that book is about. We also noted that some themes are explicit, so they're super clear, because come out and tell you, we looked at John, um, he tells you exactly what he wants to accomplish and uh, what he's writing about. Sometimes it's more implicit, which we're going to keep continuing into this morning, and it's a little harder. So like Galatians, it doesn't quite come out and say, this is what I'm writing about the truth of the gospel. But by looking at repetition, which we started into, we're going to finish this morning, you can start to see, okay, there is a connection here, and these repetitions point back to what the whole letter is about, the truth of of the gospel. We also looked, uh, before repetition, the tips. So a lot of the times, looking into... The introduction, paying really close attention to the beginning and to the end. It's not surprising. This is how books are written. This is how communication, the way God designed it, is. Um, and so, special note of that, I think Judges is like that. If you look at the first full chapter and you kind of think of it as a setting, an introduction, and then you look at the way it ends, particularly the last sentence, and that will help identify and point you to the main theme. Any questions so far? All right, we'll leave it because we're going to get to the judges. All right, um, before we go back to repetition, I want to talk a little bit on this because I think um, I had this at the end of this lecture, but I moved it up because we can, this connects to repetition and then also it'll allow us to stay in Joshua and Judges the rest of our time. Um, but another tip for identifying a central theme is the theme is most easily identified in the theological or doctrinal portion of the book. So particularly when you get to epistles, if you're familiar, um, kind of the pattern, especially of Paul, is when you come to Colossians, the first two chapters are very doctrinal, very theological, and chapters 3 and 4 are the application of, of those, that, that theology, of those truths. Uh, Galatians is six, six chapters. The first three chapters is theological. The second half of Galatians is very practical. Uh, Galatians is the same way um, first three chapters are very theological and doctrinal. The four, five, and six are very um, practical. That to say, you will find it in the first half. You will find it in the theological section because he has to explain everything, as it were. Um, what are you applying? What truth? What subject? What am I trying to address? Has to be identified. And so some of that's just helpful if you're trying to think, where am I going to find it in those books? You're going to find it in that first half 
um, because the practical side is only going to make sense with the theological foundation being built, um, which implication-wise for us is really important because so many times we think um, if we just talk about how to be a good Christian, how to be a good parent, um, how to handle your finances, we think we have enough to be a faithful Christian. Uh, but I think the scripture is very clear. That's not a good enough motivation. It's not a good enough motivation um, to say, I just want to take care of my finances or I want to be a good dad and make sure I'm at all the games. That's not ultimately going to motivate you to be Christ-like. Uh, you need the theology. You need to understand, um, say in Ephesians, what you're called to. Um, and then you, so you have a higher theological motivation that's flowing into then, oh, okay, so this is why I want to be this kind of husband who's a servant leader, this kind of wife who's faithfully submissive, this kind of um, son or daughter, this kind of business owner, um, slaves, masters in Ephesians. But you have to have the foundation, and it's just always going to be there that this main central theme is going to be in that section. So that's just kind of, I think, another helpful tip. And then to illustrate that, which was something I was hoping to do last time, was to look at Colossians. So I don't have this necessarily in slide form, so if you want to open up to Colossians chapter 1, we're just going to identify some of these things, and actually this will be, this will be an assignment for next week as well, so I'm, I'm letting you uh, cheat a little bit. So repetition, oftentimes you'll have an exact word, but sometimes you'll have concepts. So it's okay. Sometimes it's really neat the way the biblical writers use words. And that exact same word, and sometimes you have to look into the Greek, decide if, the, you know, was it the exact same Greek word or not. Um, and sometimes it's not. But it'll be a synonym. And that's okay, too, because we like to say things differently because we don't like to be boring. Um, and so you'll see things worded a different way. Particularly you see it in poetry where um, there's going to be some type of, it's, it's going to read two verses, it's going to say the exact same thing. You're going to be like, why does it say the same thing? Well, it's just a way of emphasizing it, but it'll word it a different way. So if you pull up Colossians chapter 1, and um, just for me, at some point when I, in this Bible, which is a fairly new Bible to me, um, you know, I started looking through when I'm reading my Bible, and I like to, it's not always super scientific, but if I start seeing the same word, it'll get circled, it'll get underlined, it'll get arrows, um, there's no rhyme per reason. But I just want to start seeing what are the repetitive kind of terms. Colossians is a good example because you're going to see repetitive terms that are the same, and you're also going to see repetitive concepts. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so you see filled, which we understand filled, to what level? Think of a glass of water. It's, it's filled, well, filled to the fullness. So you see this idea of being filled to the full, to the max, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You're going to start seeing, especially in the way Paul wants to communicate this repeated pattern, that in verse 10 he goes, Why? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every, and so there would be a good example, um, where every, all are different words, but they're synonyms. Every good work multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened in all power, according to his glorious might, for attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in his inheritance of the saints in light. When he gets to the theological side of this, well, 
where is everything found? Where is this fullness? And he's going to go into the person of Christ. Look at verse 17. Um, he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Um, in him, through him, verse 20, through him again. Um, so you're starting to see, okay, if you just were writing on a piece of paper, just literally a napkin, you'd start to see all full in him, through him. So you're seeing what I would start to say is these concepts of without knowing anything else in this book, I'll make this a question. Without knowing anything else in this book, what kind of problem do you think Peter or Paul is trying to address? Right. So you don't know anything else about the book of Colossians except for reading those four or five verses in the first chapter. And you already start to sense. I'm not saying it tells you everything you need to know, but your, your, your spidey sense is up and you're, you're kind of having a, this is interesting because this is all, all, every, every, uh, fill to the fullness. And so, yeah, so I, I think immediately I go, well, he's addressing something that, why is he writing? Well, it seems like they have something that they might even view as partial. It may not be partial. But he's saying, okay, you, you have something that you think is partial, and I'm going to tell you it's full. And so fast forward, you're going to keep seeing these terms, uh, maturity, which, of course, uh, verse chapter 2, verse 2, so that their hearts may be encouraged, having been held together in love, even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of himself, of understanding under the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. I mean, this is almost to the point where you can, t- and this is the danger of repetition, is you almost tune it out, because it's repetitive so much so. Um, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, oh, drop down to like 220. Uh, I sent this first to Chris Snyder, because he was asking me about Lent and things, and uh, I think a good example of biblically talking about what the purpose of Lent is um, is meant to be an aid to spiritual growth. And then I actually think immediately, well, we have a whole book, I'm kind of cheating with Colossians, that's talking about what it means to mature. And over and over again, he's trying to say, you're going to be tempted to go outside of Christ. You're going to be tempted to look towards physical things because you see them. Um, and don't we all love that we, we, you know, we, one of the things about ministry in general that can be hard is you don't have as many visible results. So some businesses, you know they're successful because you can look at the numbers, you can look at units sold and go, we had a good year. That doesn't work that way in, in spiritual things. Um, when you drop down <coughs> to verse 18, like I said, this is, just an overview, but just a helpful application of repetition of, of concepts. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of the angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. Which is interesting. You start to look at certain movements today, and over and over again you go, someone is trying to present themselves as spiritual, and it becomes, what did God tell them? What vision had they had? What Secret knowledge do they have that you've never experienced, a lot of experiential stuff. And he says, being puffed up with nothing but his fleshly mind, he's saying you're going to be tempted to do those things because you're going to see those things, but rather hold fast to Christ, 
hold fast to the gospel, say that's sufficient. So that's typically a word that pops up in Colossians, that Christ is sufficient, that the gospel is sufficient, that um, sufficient not just for salvation, but for spiritual growth. Um, see, now holding fast to, not only holding fast to the head, verse 19, from whom the entire body being supplied, so there's even a metaphor there of the body, held together by the joints, ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. That is to say, you can't find spiritual growth outside of Christ. It'd be like cutting the head off, and that, that's, you, you cut the head off, the body's not going to grow. Um, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, verse 20, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, do not handle, nor touch, nor taste, uh, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom, or I, I do like the ESV here, um, which give the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. indulgence. So just looking at that really briefly, without even, like I said, jumping into the practical side of three and four, you already have this idea of part, partial, insufficient, sufficient. Um, the issue at play is, how do I grow? And the world's going to present one way of growing, and Paul is helping the Church of Colossae saying, I understand what you're challenged with, is people are telling you, this is how to grow spiritually, let me correct you. Um, and it might even be that people are saying, and likely, because it's the moons and the Sabbath, so it's very similar to Galatians, is that they're mixing some of these things with perhaps Old Testament law, maybe with Greek culture, and they're bringing those things in, and they're likely bringing those things into the church. And he's saying, this is, I know they're trying to tell you this, this, and this. No, no, no. You, you have to go back to Christ and in Christ are hidden all the treasures, all the wisdom, all the knowledge. So for our purposes, looking at repetition, you'll see concepts as well. So concepts that'll point you to what is being addressed here. Because we, we can't paint a full picture of that occasion. We can only paint what the text says in that. I mean, we're, we're only seeing a, a piece of it. So it's not to say every, like everything is bad at the Colossae Church. We're just saying this is what Paul wants us to know. And... As you think about the importance of Scripture, this is the part of the church at Colossae that God wants the church universal, 2023 Providence, to know about as well. He could have, there's probably some good things about the church at Colossae. There's probably some other things. But he didn't say those things. He said these things, which is why it's important to be distinctive um, as we study to go, what exactly is he saying? Because he said this as opposed to saying something, something different. So not just, just exact wording, but you'll see a lot of exact wording, but you'll also see ideas of concepts that'll point you to what the book is about. All right, so I have a little more slides with Joshua. Hopefully everyone's fairly familiar with uh, Joshua. It'll help the more context you have. Uh, but looking at this, just want to illustrate repetition uh, with the book of Joshua and a historical Old Testament narrative because... Relatively speaking, Jude is a lot easier. Part of that is Jude is just you know, shorter, so you can read and reread and reread. Uh, Colossians is four chapters, Galatians is six, and then you get to Joshua and you're going, well, this is hard to read the whole thing. How do I start breaking this apart? How do I go about observing and looking in narrative especially 
for the central theme. This is an example of repetition that sometimes you might go, this is interesting, and then you keep reading and it might be confirmed, which might lead you somewhere else, which is this is an example of, of that happening. So chapter 2, you're dealing with, obviously, Moses has died. Joshua is leading the people into the promised land. There's an issue of we don't know what's basically there, and so they're going to send the 12 spies. Uh, we know the story. Ten come back, are fearful to come back, and um, are the ones giving this faithful report in Joshua. And so, um, let's see here. Talking about, well, previously, excuse me, when you, you have Joshua and Caleb come back. Now, future, same deal. They're sending the spies out. So chapter 2, uh, you can read here. It says, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. This is Rahab and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen away or fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, uh, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Indeed, we heard it and our hearts melted and a courageous spirit no longer rose up in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so they come in to Rahab's house, which you might first even go, well, why in the world would the two spies, when they enter Jericho, go into the harlot, the prostitute's house? Um, They're spies, and so spies try to blend in, and what everyone's doing in a godless pagan society at Jericho is that's where they're going. That's the hotel. It's the brothel. And so they're trying to stay undercover. We find out pretty early in chapter 2, verse 2, is that the king says the spies have arrived because they're looking and they're waiting for the spies. And so they know they're there. The question is, are they, what's the response going to be? Are they going to be encouraged because of the walls of Jericho? How are they going to defeat them? And then from the mouths of the most unlikely person, the harlot, she says this, that she tells them right away, listen, everyone here is afraid, and she's actually going to ask them ultimately to, hey, save me, my family. Um, but it's a testimony coming out of the mouth of a harlot, and you'll see the melted away, melted away. And then repeated later in this chapter, the two men return. They came down from the hill country, crossed over, came to Joshua, the son of Nun. They recounted him all that had happened to them, and they said to Joshua, surely Yahweh has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. And so this is just an example of observing Okay, there's a pattern here of not only is it interesting who has said this, but this phrase, melted away, melted away, melted away, that she's saying um, all the people have been fearful. Um, the summary of all their travels up to this point, all their victories, is coming out of the mouth of Rahab. So I would just suggest this is an example of something that should trigger a little bit of study um, why is this important? And sometimes this is where the context of not just the book itself, but other books are really, really helpful. Because when you get back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, and so Deuteronomy is the retelling of a lot of the next generation, the promises that God has given to Israel, is he going to be faithful is, is the biggest question when they go into this land. And 
Deuteronomy 2, 24, as the law is being recounted, says, Arise, set out, pass through the valley of Ammon, look, I have given Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your land, begin to take possession and provoke him to battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who, when they hear the report of you, will tremble and be in anguish because of you. So God has promised in Deuteronomy chapter 2 that I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you Sihon the Amorite. And if we just go back to what did Rahab say? She's heard. Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. What you did to the kings of the Amorites who went beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og. And so you see God fulfilled his promise. He was faithful from Deuteronomy 2 all the way to Joshua. They've been faithful there. And the encouragement that this is traveled and trust the Lord. He's going to be faithful to his promises and you are going to be able to defeat further, the further people in the promised land. Uh, 11.25, you continue on, you're going to see in Deuteronomy this same concept that no one, no man, will be able to stand before you. Yahweh, your God, will put the dread of you, the fear of you, on all the land on which you set foot as he has spoken to you. And so, you're struck by what is beginning to happen, what starts in Deuteronomy, and exactly what God said in Deuteronomy is being fulfilled and is being accomplished in the book of Joshua. And so you hear a theological lesson from the most unlikely of people, the prostitute there. And then when we get to, and this is what I mean by connecting these two, in this case, with Deuteronomy, God's faithful promises, you see he's faithful to his promises, well, that connects to what the book of Joshua is about. And I would say Joshua, it's an implicit theme, but it's probably as close to an explicit theme as as you're going to find. Um, Joshua 21, towards the end of the book, so this would be another example of looking at the beginning, looking at the end, which is why sometimes you read a few chapters of a book and go, I don't understand it. Well, sometimes you've got to get to the end and then reread and reread again. But so Yahweh, he says at the end, gave all the land which he had sworn to give to his fathers, and they possessed it, lived in it. Yahweh gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. No one of all their enemies stood before them. Yahweh gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one promise of the good promises which Yahweh had promised to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Which is to say, narrative that's teaching a theological lesson that God keeps his promises and just by seeing melted away melted away melted away they feared Israel they feared Israel they feared Israel should trigger at least in our minds to go let's research that further and what you'll discover in Deuteronomy is that's exactly what God promised Um, and you see God's faithfulness um, and that he can be trusted and so also implicitly you go what does the New Testament church care about God's faithfulness to Israel well because God's the same yesterday today tomorrow and our hope for eternal life is built on the confidence that God is faithful to his promises. Um, so when you talk about Joshua, God is faithful to his promises. I think that would be, you start to go, if we broke down the book of Joshua, you'd start to see every section is going back to this same idea, reminding us, proving to us through narrative that God keeps his word, God keeps his word, God keeps his word. And then it's summarizing at the end, not one of the promises, the good promises we always failed, um, all came to pass. Questions on Joshua?
or thoughts on? Right. Um, was it a cross-reference that, you know, the question came out, oh, you're talking about fear, and mm -hmm. you know, how did you go about to, would you go about making that connection with another book? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, e either a cross-references cross could be helpful, um, and then, but I'd say one, it, yeah, so the rep repetition would trigger fear and dread, which is in chapter two, which is the very beginning of the book triggered at least a level of why are we seeing this um, and then depending on your context you may think this was promised in Deuteronomy which is probably what Joshua intends but yes we, we're all dealing with limited you know brain power and our Bible knowledge is always growing so hopefully you know um, but then uh, yeah you can look towards um, a word search uh, or you can work towards um, cross-references and those things. So. Uh, one more for repetition. Um, there's the Psalm 136, just to use an example of poetry. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to read it, and then I will ask a very difficult question. What is the main point? All right, Psalm 136. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of the lords, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who spread out the heaven above the waters, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness endures forever. The moon and the stars by rule, or to rule by night, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who struck the Egyptians through their firstborn, for his loving kindness endures forever. Then brought Israel out of their midst, for his loving kindness endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his loving kindness endures forever. And God and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his loving kindness endures forever. For he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who struck great kings, for his loving kindness endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his loving kindness endures forever. Sion, the king of the Amorites. So again, if you're just searching, wonder where Sion's mentioned. That would be one place where that would pull back a promise to defeat Sion in Deuteronomy 2. It also pulls up Psalm 136. Um, Sion, king of the Amorites, for his loving kindness endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his loving kindness endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, for his loving kindness endures forever. Even an inheritance to Israel, a servant, for his loving kindness endures forever. Who remembered us in our low state, for his loving kindness endures forever. And has snatched us from our adversaries, for his loving kindness endures forever who gives food to all flesh for his loving kindness endures forever and gives thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness endures forever. Who wants to answer what you think the main point is? <laughs> it's 
loving kindness endures forever. This might be an extreme, but you go, why would you even write this? And why write so repetitively? And this is just a reminder that sometimes we think people write the way we would write, or that sounds repetitive, and my English teacher just got on me for redundancy, and you already said that you don't need to say it again. Um, but in Scripture, they're going to use repetition, <coughs> this being an extreme form. And also in this way, how long did it take you to almost tune out? Here we go again, right? I don't know, three, four times. It's like, all right, I know, I know, I know, I know. That's even when I think the intents of the psalmist here is for you is to say you can take it to the bank. His loving kindness endures forever. Um, you can assume his loving kindness endures forever uh, and the right kind of, uh, of assumption. Um, and so he does that in this way with extreme repetition. Um, and so this would be another short form of what's the main subject because we haven't talked too much about psalms. I think psalms is organized in such a way as far as obviously worship and songs um, where you could say there's a, a, a central theme in which way that these exist with a purpose. But also each one, and this is back to each eventually paragraph we're going to talk about, is going to have its own topic sentence. And Psalm 136, this is not difficult to do a lot of research and go, what is its central theme? Its central theme is, is loving kindness endures forever. So that's a really good example. All right, homework time. Oh, yeah. Right, 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 right. Right, right. So, and, and that's one of the reasons I picked it is because you look at Jeremiah or Joshua twenty-one, and you look at Psalm one thirty-six, and you go, "Oh, like th- th- this is where God's driving His people." So, and then if we were to pick up on First Corinthians. And to even look and go, why should you care about your Old Testament? Well, it's pretty clear in the New Testament that all these were examples for you. So we don't need um, the Lord to... A lot of people are going to hijack Old Testament promises um, and, you know, um, name it, claim it, that kind of thing. And the point is, he doesn't need to, you know, part the Red Sea or raise the dead in front of you. The point is, he's done these things, and his loving kindness endures forever. And we tend to go, well, I want it to happen to me. And it's like, well, that's not the point. The point is it has happened. He's proven himself. So, But yes, I do think, then you go, how is that theme developed? It's developed through narrative and history. And then if you wanted to, say you were teaching or preaching this passage, you'd probably immediately start to go, isn't that true in your life, where God has been faithful? And, of course, the older you are, the more you can start to go, yes, he was, yes, he was. Look at how my life has changed in the last three years or five years or ten years. And you'd be the same place going, and it's loving kindness. I was really stupid then. I was kind of stupid there. I'm still pretty slow, but loving kindness endures forever. So, All right, Judges. Author, are we all okay with anonymous? Anyone want to fight? Anyone read anything differently if you went to a, not that, 
Yeah, he said, probably better if you didn't go to a study Bible, but I'm okay if you did. Right, and I think there's a couple things that make it difficult where if it is Samuel, um, you're a little bit back to like editors. It would be probably parts of Samuel because there are certain things that clearly, there's some debate over this, which either way, the Spirit inspired this material, just like the Kings and Chronicles, to come together. Um, and so did an editor come back and add a few things, like the comments that would be clearly dated post-Samuel, like Samuel wouldn't have been alive during that era? Did they just add those things and edit it like lightly? Or is it heavily edited and most of it's Samuel? You know, that kind of thing. Um, we, we looked at Kings earlier. You know, it just, it's clear. It's like they had libraries in that sense where they could go and get this and recount their history. So, um, but I would say in general, we, we, we just don't really know. Um, but also that might help us start to go on the history side of things that the author is not going to play an important role in the sense of this is, you know, a, a specific person. Um, audience. We'll just say Israel. And then can we sharpen that? Let's just say, let's ask the question when. What Israel, if that's fair? Okay. Um, this is a good one, I think, to illustrate. You think this is so basic. How could the observation of who it's being written to have any impact on my interpretation? And I think this is a good example of where you go. This is really, really helpful as me reading it in 2023. Uh, go to, like, uh, let's see, Judges 18.30. And this would be another case where I understand when you go, well, I wouldn't have picked that up. And it's like, I, I know. But it's just say it's there. Um, I'm not saying I picked it up when I read Judges for the first time. Um, I don't know who's the first person to point this out to me, but someone else pointed this out to me. So, But I do think it's helpful to say it, it's there. Um, <clears throat> you see certain things. Um, there's no king, verse 1, in Israel. So clearly they know about kings in Israel. He's saying, hey, audience, I know you're thinking of Saul and David and Solomon, but no, this is a time before there were kings. So you at least kind of go, okay, this is after. This isn't the audience living through the judges. This is somebody who knows a time where there's kings. So at least you're getting into minimum Saul probably a little bit later than that. Um, 1830 would be one of the ones um, that probably, again, wouldn't totally stick out, but if, if you're reading intentionally and you're rereading, it, it, it would trigger at least a question to go, whoa. Um, and this is kind of back to the editor side of things. Did they just add this? And then if he did, either way, it means it's final form presented to the people as, again, inspired by God for this purpose is this audience being the last possible audience would be 18. I think 30 is probably the latest date you could give it. Um, it says, the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, which interesting in Revelation chapter 7. If you remember, they get kicked off the list because they're in the north and 
this is very typical of them. Um, Graven and, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the exile of the land. So now not only do you have a seeming implication of, you know, a time where there were kings. This is a time when it, well, there were no kings. You also now have him presenting and saying, audience, well, you know this, which is they served until the Babylonian exile. And so that's why, and yes, it's just one verse, but it's there. And you go, the audience appears to be the audience of Israel in exile. Why is that important? I think that's important. That's helpful. Because now you go, well, what lesson would you be trying to teach? Um, Babylon captivity, 70 years. And they knew they were, it was promised to be 70 years. What are they supposed to learn in captivity? And what needs to be taught to an exiled nation, history of their nation, and more importantly, theological lessons to the nation? Because you're going to return, and I think this is a huge, big, glowing, flashing warning book. For who, though? For the returning generation. They need to know what happened. And that, that's all going to play in and be very, very helpful with interpretation and uh, implication. So, so the anonymous author of Judges writing the exile of Israel and reminding them of the history of their past of what we're probably about ready to hear I'll buy that. Yeah, so, I mean, on the occasion side, yeah. So, um, so again, what, what prompted it? Well, they need a history. They need a concise history, which means, just like any history book, history, you know, they talk about weaponizing history now and all that fun stuff. Um, but it's to say, like, you're, you're intentionally, just like Luke, you're not saying everything about the life of Jesus. You're saying things that you are for your purpose. Um, and so that's also going to help us go, why these stories of these judges. And so when we get through judges, uh, you know, some of them are going to be longer like Gideon or Samson. Other of them are going to be like two judges in one verse. Why not them? Well, for whatever reason, he just, they're not, whatever went on in their life, which probably was really good, which is probably, I'm trying to teach a lesson from bad examples. And they're really good examples. So they get one verse. Because Samson and Gideon are really bad examples. So, Despite Gideon, that's a whole other tangent. Um, anyone surprised by Gideon if you guys read through Judges? I don't know if you haven't read Judges in a while and you read Gideon. And he sounds like a good guy. And he's like, oh, no, we're only going to serve Yahweh. But <laughs> set me up as a king and set up my children as kings. It's like, so Gideon's a complex character. But yes, I think, so occasion, if you had to write, Babylon captivity, um, a need for history, uh, and it, probably more than that, I said, a need for a theological lesson. Their, their pending return is the prompting the writing of this. Anybody with a purpose? You know, but you could start to observe if you read the Old Testament, a lot of idolatry goes on in Dan because they're the most northern tribe of Israel. They're also the first tribe that goes, you know, if you're going to conquer Israel from the north, Dan goes out first. Um, as far as influence of, say, pagan culture, who gets influenced first? Well, who's on the border? So Dan typically is uh, 
They don't do a lot of things right. So, uh, purpose. What does he want to accomplish in the book of Judges? So they wouldn't repeat the mistakes in the past. Right. I think both to show, I guess I just put, um, show consequences of disobedience. Uh, but you can also say on the, on the positive side, which I think is where you start to get lean into what his main subject is, um, that his loving kindness endures forever, and that when you see that pattern or that cycle, or a lot of people talk the spiral because it's a progressive, it gets worse, that God is faithful. When they repent, he saves, he saves, he saves, he saves, he saves, even as they get worse, worse, and worse. Um, and for a lot of people, if we're talking about connecting this as well to Israel, future Israel, we're in Revelation. Um, this is where it's really helpful to go back to the Deuteronomy passages and, and seeing that early on, like this, this was predicted. Um, even when you get to the end of Joshua and all the promises are um, fulfilled, a lot of people go, well, see, it was all fulfilled then. There's no promises left unfulfilled. And then you get into... Um, you go to Judges chapter 1, just as an example. All, all Judges chapter 1 setting is basically that they didn't possess the land, they didn't possess the land, they didn't possess the land. So again, that's well, all the promises up to that point in Joshua, God has faithfully fulfilled. Could the writer of Joshua have said, well, there's some other things that um, they didn't possess all the land. Well, again, that's, that's not his point. His point is to go and say, God was faithful to his promises in Deuteronomy, and the onus is going to be on the unfaithfulness of Israel and, and judges. So, so show consequences of disobedience. Um, all of these things, like I said, you're going to word these. I think my encouragement is, as you study, this is where you can read other people, but the more you internalize it, or to use our metaphor this morning, eat it, get the same idea, digest it, the more you'd personally digest it, like John digesting a little scroll, um, the more it'll stick and the more you'll remember it. So if you worded it a little differently to show consequences of disobedience, that'd be fine. There's also, you know, you can use a sentence, you can use a paragraph, and I'm a short, I'm, I'm, I'm a sentence guy, if I can be. So, so then, looking at, um, let's talk repetitions. So this is kind of where we wanted to get to. Um, what did you guys know? Well, I don't want you to cheat. Uh, what would you guys say? What did you, you guys notice as repetitive terms, phrases, even just early on throughout the book? What phrases jumped out? They did what was right in their own eyes? Although that comes towards the end, which is interesting. But there, it's repeated. It's, it's, right. No king in Israel is repeated a few times in the last few chapters, which I think is interesting even the way it's progressive in that, like, they did what was right in their own eyes. And, and, and even the, the wickedness. I mean, all, it's so fascinating. You, you study these books and, you know, you have uh, the story of the prostitute. I mean, it's all messed up. Why does a Levite have a concubine? And then he's like, take my concubine, who then is raped and murdered, and then, oh, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and cut her up and send it. This is really, really important. Narrative is a, uh, 
it's describing what happened, not prescribing what you should do. So description, not prescription. And actually, I think that whole story is to describe how wicked Israel had become. So it, it actually is meant to be like, that's evil and wicked. I mean, that's actually what you're supposed to feel. So, so there's a couple. Uh, how, how about the cycle? Typically, what is the cycle? What phrases are the cycle uh, set off by? Okay. Did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. I, I didn't even count it, but it's pretty much almost every time you see a new judge. Again, not every, every time because there's a few times where it's shortened, but in general, before it launches into some, why do they need saving? Because they did what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord brought judgment. And then they, Israel cried out to Yahweh would be the other phrase. And so, yes, you could read in a book, and it can talk about the spiral. It could talk about this pattern of disobedience, repentance, and salvation, right? But I'm just, this is where I'm encouraging you. But if you read it, it's right there. And then it's using these phrases over and over again to signal that, which somebody did do that study to give you the, the, the commentary. Um, but you can too. You just read, you mark, you note. Um, and then the repetition is always going to point to the central theme to some degree. And so how would you unify? And like I said, we haven't got so far that we're breaking everything into paragraphs. But if you just were, say, judges, implicit or explicit? What do you say? Yeah, I go with implicit. In the sense that I go, it's hard for me to go. I, I got one verse that tells me everything, especially the way it starts, because it's a typical narrative. He basically sets the stage setting, and then, you know, resetting, which is also interesting if you think of that, the way a story is written. Because he gives the setting before the judges, not possess, not possess, not possess, all the sin that needs the judges. And then what's he setting? What's, he, what's the resetting? There's no king in Israel, which is setting up the next history, which is how did you get from the judges to the kings, which is first, second Samuel. So I'd go with implicit. Um, Anyone want to take a crack at how you'd word it? Right, and I might probably call that, I don't know exact like phrasing, if it was one-to-one, -one, but you'd say it probably on the conceptual side, um, which I would take a connection and go, well, when they're faithful and the Lord is with them, he delivers them. I don't know if you'd say consequences of disobedience, faithfulness of Yahweh, downward spiral of Israel, theocentric. By that I just mean how would I word it uh, in the sense of not Israel necessarily being the subject, but what is God doing? Um, those are just an example of some questions I walk through. I'm just throwing it on the, the board to see what sticks. Um, 
do those stick? Well, is everything about consequences? Probably not. Um, faithfulness of Yahweh, I'd probably start to go, that's true, but maybe I can sharpen that a little bit more to say Judges is saying something very specific about the faithfulness of Yahweh. Uh, downward spiral of Israel, yeah, but is Israel the main player or is God the main player? Hence, I'd probably put God as the subject and theocentric. Um, so, again, you can shorten this probably to say, what's the central theme? I think if you said God saves, uh, if you said salvation, like really one word, I'd go, does everything have to do with repeating that God saves? Yes. Um, if you wanted to put it in a sentence, um, I'd probably put it where you know, God will save his people if they repent and cry out to him. And that seems to be the main topic over and over again, the reminder to, there's a negative way of presenting that. So like I said, there's different ways you can word this. If you keep going in this direction and you don't learn, he will judge you and you will face the consequences. But on the positive side, you're saying a reminder to the exiled people, if you return, be reminded the God you serve is the one who saves his people when they cry out and when they repent of their sin. And that seems to be that repetitive pattern over and over again, which you see about the faithfulness of God specifically to save his people as they repent and cry out. Right. In fact, today, no more. So, time's up. And Revelation 10. So, all right, summary. Read the whole book, read the whole book, read it again, read it again, read it again. Um, so, observation one step. We're going to talk about uh, paragraphs next week. Uh, so, actually, if you want, this would be helpful. Uh, I would read Colossians, do the author audience education purpose theme, uh, and which is an implicit theme, and then uh, note any repetition that we talked about. And then lastly, which is more important, is identify the first three paragraphs. So, nope. Uh, identify, so I uh, think we haven't talked about paragraphs yet, but in the sense of like, I mean, we all know what a paragraph is. Um, the, the, uh, identify the first three units of thought. Yeah, yeah. So check where you think, okay, I think this is a topic. He starts here, he ends here, because it seems to be a new topic. So, yeah, sections, pericopes. Just take a crack at it, and then I will, we'll, we'll talk about it. Are all the units 